Okay, so uh, let's uh, get started. Thank you, everybody, for coming. This is the second session of the uh, LSE Growth Commission, and uh, I, I, you know, I should say our, our one-year mission is to seek out new knowledge and uh, new information on the sources of economic growth, in particular to inform policymaking in the UK. So at the end of this year, we're going to try and pull together a report which tries to set the scene for how in the UK we could think about policies which sustain long-run growth. So trying to get away from just the debates over short-run austerity and think about what are the kind of set of policies, the set of institutional changes that we need in this country to sustain long-run long -run, long -run growth. Uh, we're very fortunate to have a, to have a, a great set of commissioners, four of whom are, are here today. I'd like to particularly welcome Richard Lambert, who's uh, a new member of our commission, Francesco Caselli at the end, Tim Besley, who's the co-chair of me, and myself, I'm John Ranarinen, the director of the Centre for Economic Performance. So um, I'm going to uh, get on without further ado. The, um, the structure that we're going to have today is that we have three presenters, I'll introduce them all in, in a second, they're going to talk each for 15 minutes, and I'm going to try and keep that to strict, be a strict amount of time, and then after that, We'll then have the chance of the commissioners to ask them, uh, ask them questions on their presentations. And at the end of that, we'll open that up for the floor for, for further questions. So uh, one final thing I'd like to say is to uh, thank very much our, our funders, who are the uh, Higher um, Hype, the uh, Higher Education Innovation Fund at the LSE, and also the Economic and Social Research Council funding funding our And I should, oh, I should also say that this is all being recorded, by the way. Record, but don't let that hold you back for any uh, any robust questions that you want to ask. Okay, so I think uh, what we'll do is start now, and I'm very happy to have uh, Eric Hanischek here uh, from Stanford. Um, so Eric uh, is, I'm sure, well known to all of you in the audience. He's the uh, Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute of Stanford University. He's a well, um, maybe one of you know one of the world's highest regarded and best known uh, scholars on the economics of education, um, having the pioneering work in a wide range of areas, in particular on teacher quality and, uh, and schooling. And um, you know, he, is, uh, he has received many honors over the time. He's a member of the Correct Task Force in K-12 Education, an MBR Research Associate. He's uh, also chairman of the Executive Committee for the Texas Schools Project. Um, I imagine you'll be drawing on some of that work in this presentation for the make today. So I'll just hand over to you now, Eric. Um, you've got 15 minutes. Don't start the clock yet. I'm still walking up here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll start it when you start speaking. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I think this, this is extraordinarily important in my viewpoint because I think in the UK, like in the US, people have been obsessed with trying to deal with the 2008 recession and sort of getting things going and have just ignored a lot of longer term issues. Now I have a presentation here that I've uh, added, Luke Woosman is going to speak later, uh, who's fully implicated in lots of this research but has never seen these slides, so um, he has to, to put up with it. Um, I want to do uh, several things here. I want to talk about the importance of school quality, the long-run growth, uh, particularly measures of cognitive <coughs> skills. 
I want to go into early versus late investments, which will feed into also some of the things that Steve Machen is going to say later on. Um, a little special policy consideration to sort of advanced versus basic skills and talk about causation, which always comes up in these issues, and then end with a little bit on teacher quality uh, and how that fits into this whole picture. Now, economists have been, in the, over the last 20 years or so, spending a lot of time looking at what causes growth and empirical analyses. Um, and one of the big problems has been how do you measure human capital? Everybody believes that the human capital of the population is extraordinarily important for uh, growth, but uh, the measurement has been an issue, and that's what we're going to concentrate on in a large part here. It, the original work started out with enrollment rates. Why? Because UNESCO collected data on enrollment rates, and that you could use what was there. Um, after that, uh, uh, Robert Barrow, in particular, spent a lot of time uh, putting uh, together a series of data on uh, school attainment across countries that could be used in, in all of this. And here's the, the basic story you get. If you look at, uh, this is a picture that you'll see again in a different version. It compares years of schooling on the horizontal axis against uh, growth rates. Uh, it says conditional for, for one reason. This is a very simple regression of long-term growth rates, uh, the growth in GDP per capita over the period 1960 to 2000. And it's conditioned upon the level of income in 1960, uh, largely just to simply reflect the fact that if you start behind, it's easier to grow, because all you have to do is copy what everybody else is doing. And at some point, you have to start inventing new things, and it gets harder. Um, so everything is conditional <coughs> only on 1960 income levels. But when you do that, you see and these are countries of the world arrayed out in terms of long-run growth. And you see that there is this positive relationship, although a bit scattered. This uh, schooling can explain about a quarter of the variation in long-run growth rates. This regression, the regression is behind us. Um, but when you go to internationally, it's really hard to think that years of schooling makes any sense. It says that a year of schooling in, in the UK is equivalent to a year of schooling in Peru. And that just doesn't make any sense to, to think of, of it that way. And so what um, Luther and I have done uh, is following on some other work to try to use international assessments of math and science skills as a, as a measure of the skill level of populations, and then look at how that relates to uh, growth. There have been a lot of these measures, actually, since 1960. Everybody knows of the PISA scores in the 2000s, but they actually go back uh, quite a bit farther than that. And what we did was sort of basically take all of these and make a very elaborate sausage out of all of the measures of math and science skills available for countries over time. Um, and then when you do that, you get a, this, the same picture, except this is now <coughs> test scores along the horizontal axis and growth rates. And what you see is that now countries fall a lot more on a straight line. In fact, you can explain 75 to 80 percent 
of the variation in long-run growth rates with just cognitive skills and initial achievement. So that's the same thing. And so, and let me go back. Um, this is important because there are really serious policy implications, I think, of this. There was the picture I showed you before of years of schooling. If you just look at years of schooling and growth, look at the same picture when we also include cognitive skills. What you see is that there's absolutely no relationship between years of schooling and economic growth once you allow for what people know, a measure of what they know. Um, I did have to admit that it, it took me about two years to understand what this said. This picture says, if you go to school and don't learn anything, it doesn't count. <laughs> that's the way it is. Um, but that's what this, this says. And it, what that, why that's important is that in the US and I think in the UK and other places, there's all this emphasis on, well, let's keep kids in school and let's find some way to lock them into school and get um, secondary school completion rates up and so forth. Um, it doesn't make any difference if they come with low basic skills, is, is the story here. Now, um, should you concentrate on the lowest achievers or highest achievers? Is this rocket scientists versus basic skills? Uh, the answer seems to be that both are important. If you, it's a little bit hard to, to get at, but if you just try to break them apart, it looks like both are important. Um, and if anything, uh, more rocket scientists, the high level of skills, is more important in developing countries than it is in developed countries. Um, what about tertiary education? I know Steve is going to talk a bit about that. Um, there's work that um, if uh, the other commissioner, Philippe Aguillon, was here, would talk about <coughs> how close you are to the frontier of technology and so forth. What we've, what we've and that that's why um, tertiary skills might be more important in developed countries than in less developed countries. Um, we don't find that. Uh, that after you consider the level of basic cognitive skills, uh, the amount of tertiary skills doesn't seem to make an, a, any extra difference. Um, let me give you a quick estimate of, of what this all adds up to. So you can take history and say, what if history goes into the future? If the same relationship between long-run growth and cognitive achievement holds in the future, what does this say from a policy to increase skills? So what we do is some simulations that takes that picture I showed you in the past, says, let's put into place a policy. And here's the first one I'll look at. Um, let's put into place a policy in the UK that in 20 years raises PISA scores by 25 points, a quarter of a standard deviation improvement in scores after 20 years. Now, PISA scores themselves have no value for economic growth, right? Because these are the 15-year-olds in school. So you have to wait till people get out into the labor market and so on. So we sort of put people into the labor market. Um, uh, we assume it holds. We're going to discount the future, by the way, at 3%, uh, because lots of this economic growth thing says things are way out in the future. And some of us don't care about 2075 GDP as much as other people. Um, so uh, uh, we have growth at 1.5%. Um, and what we're going to do is 
put people in the labor market with higher skills, wait till they become a larger and larger part of the labor market, calculate the impact of GDP according to history on, uh, of this on GDP according to history over the lifetime of somebody born today, 80 years, discount it back to the, to the present and assume that everybody works 40 years. Here's the answers from the UK. First thing I said, a quarter of a standard deviation, 25 points on PISA, would put the UK and roughly Australia or Germany. According to this history, the present value over 80 years is a mere $7 trillion, or about three times your current GDP. Now, if you thought of a policy that brought you up to Finland, which is about half of a standard deviation or 50 PISA points, you're talking about $15 trillion in present value terms. Um, if you talk about bringing the 14.4% of, of low achievers in the UK up to just level one. Level one is a problem like this. Level one is I came here and bought an airline ticket to get here. It cost $1,700. The exchange rate between the dollar and the pound is 1.56. What is the value of my ticket in uh, pounds? So it's a problem that, that a 15-year-old can, given all of the data, can handle a problem like that. If you brought the 14.4% of your 15-year-olds that can't solve that level one problem up to being able to solve that problem, it's worth close to $10 trillion in present value terms. Now, I don't know how to put it. In the US, the estimate of the long from 2008 recession is, on the, uh, from 2008 to today, is on the order of $3 trillion. And these numbers for the US are uh, $45 trillion, $103 trillion, and um, I forget the number there, yeah, $40, $50 trillion. Um, it, it comes, so, so the obsession with the current problems of unemployment and the recession, while real, I mean, I'm not trying to minimize that, are dwarfed by considerations of long-term growth. And so that's, that's why this is all saying this commission makes sense. <laughs> um, um, so, the, the normal problem is, do you believe all of this? It, it, can you believe the causation, that, uh, that this is a causal story, but if you actually improve scores? And I'm just going to summarize. Uh, Luther and I have spent a lot of time doing this. It's hard to do this to demonstrate causation in any completely convincing way when you have data on 50 countries and a cross-sectional regression. But what we're trying to do is sort of surround the problem and sort of look at it from a variety of different ways. Uh, we've done a lot of robustness checks about the time period, the set of countries you use, the measures, uh, exact uh, test measures, looking just within regional variation and so forth. We've done some series of uh, IV models to try to do this based upon characteristics of the school system that would presumably lead to increased achievement but not be affected themselves by growth per se. Um, exit, the use of exit exams from schools, Catholic schools, school choice. 
Um, we've done some difference in difference models that I'm going to show you this answer in a minute. Uh, if historically we look at countries that have improved their achievement as their growth rate gone up. Um, and finally, we looked within the U.S. at immigrants to the U.S. educated in other countries. And we basically find that the skills that are developed uh, have a payoff in the U.S. market. So it can't be the, the sort of market economics of the local countries that's driving this, because within a single market, the U.S., you get these skills paying off. Uh, we can go into more detail. But here's, here's one thing that I, I, I was completely surprised when we did this. So this is looking at our time series of these test scores over time. This is mainly OECD countries. And you see Japan and Korea are at the top and kind of flat. So what we've done is project out, just drawn a line through all of the observations we have. And, and this is the slope of that line through these observations from, we've shown 75 to 2,000. That's sort of made up. It's the, well, the, the important thing is the slope. And you have Japan and Korea at the top. You have Finland, the, the uh, envy of the world here, showing great gains to 2,000 and projected out to the there at the top. Um, uh, Germany and the US, nobody ever objects to Italy down at the bottom and falling. Um, <laughs> uh, so here's the, the pattern that we've seen in the past. And what the story I've told you is that if a country is improving rapidly in terms of test scores, we should see that their growth rates have also gone up. So you can go to all of these countries, and for each country, we take annual growth rates of GDP and draw a line through the annual growth rates. And the question is, do, does the growth rate tend to go up or, or down, and is it related? So here's the plot of the, just the trend in test scores, the slope of those test score lines against the trend in growth rates. This is the simple regression for each country of growth rates. And what you see is that they all fall in the right quadrant, at least. I mean, this is a kind of crude test, but it just shocked me no end to believe that you're basically looking at the second derivative of these uh, things. Um, policy options. I have two minutes to John will let me know for policy options. The one thing we know over time is if you want to increase test scores, simply throwing more money at the problem doesn't work. Um, and it's easy to demonstrate that in all kinds of ways. But here's, here's the simple <coughs> plot of cumulative expenditures on schools in, uh, from OECD education at a glance against PISA scores in 2003. You can take any year of PISA score, any PISA score, and, and basically any set of countries. The simple regression line says, well, there's a slight positive relationship between spending and achievement. But that relationship comes only if you believe that, that Mexico and Greece are particularly informative. If you leave out Mexico and Greece, you get a, just a flat line between spending across countries and that. Now, my answer is um, simply teacher quality. Uh, and this comes from a lot of micro work that I've been doing in the US. Um, the strongest evidence about what affects achievement comes from differences in effectiveness of teachers. But, but it is not related to all of the common measures we use for policy purposes. 
it's unrelated to the qualifications, degree level in the U.S. where they have master's degrees. It's unrelated to experience of teachers after the first couple of years. Um, we're right on schedule, John. Uh, <laughs> the, um, it's unrelated to the certification, whether they took all the right education courses and so forth. Um, uh, but it is observable through uh, performance and supervisor ratings. Now, what, what I'm going to show you is a series of estimates of, which look like, which are called value-added of teacher estimates. They're essentially conditional mean achievement in classrooms associated with, with um, uh, individual teachers subject to starting achievement of the kids, other characteristics, background of the kids, and so forth. And it's an attempt to isolate the teacher effect. There have been a whole bunch of these studies over time, and there's more all the time because they rely upon the annual testing of kids and linking with teachers. Um, and uh, down at the bottom, you get some answer. That the thing to take away from this is, in a wide range of circumstances, you get roughly the same answers. Most of the variation lies within individual schools and not across schools. Um, so this is all. These are all estimates, by the way, with models of school fixed effects. So it's just using the within school variation in teacher quality. So I'll, what I'll show you is how this relates to, to growth, and then I'll stop. Um, how does this relate to growth? What I've, what I've given you here is actually estimates of the standard deviation of teacher effectiveness that is quite closely related. And so it says, how much difference is there between a good and a bad teacher? basically, and, and what's the distribution look like. And if they all, if the variation was, was zero, then we wouldn't worry about this. We'd do something else. But it turns out that the variation, the, the numbers here, I'm not going to try to interpret for you, are large. Um, and so let me do the following experiment. This actually relates to, um, I, I went to a military school for, as an undergraduate. And in the military, they like to line everybody up in, in, in line according to some characteristic. I'm going to line all the teachers up according to the characteristic of how effective they are in the classroom. And then I'm going to do a mental experiment of what would happen if I dismiss the bottom 2% or 4% of the teachers and replace them with an average teacher. Not a superstar, but an average teacher. And what would the impact be on test scores from these estimates? Now, here's where the, everything's kind of low here. What this is, is um, if we, what I call deselect, so I don't <laughs> offend my friends in the teachers union. Um, if you deselect some percent of teachers and go across the number deselected, and this is the estimate from, from the information on teacher quality of what would happen to aggregate test scores. And you go over two, four, six. And the important thing is, if so if I look out at, um, oh, and I've got two lines here to, rec to recognize that there's some uncertainty in exactly how much variation there is in teacher effectiveness. But if I, if I go out to 6% and I, I go up here, it looks like if I replace the bottom 6% of teachers with an average teacher by the, by the biggest estimates, the U.S. could be up to Canada level. Um, by the lowest estimates, the red lines, if I go out and eliminate 10% of the teachers and replace them with an average teacher, I could be in Canada. So a, a range is 6 to 10% of the teachers 
uh, are harming kids enough to keep us from Canada. Canada for the U.S. is $75 trillion in present value, by the way, just to, to put that into perspective. And there's some thought that we could even, with 10% of our teachers, be at Finland level, which is $100 trillion. Um, and uh, that's, that's just a, um, you know, a minor change. Oh, and this is a one-time change. You don't have to eliminate 5 to 10% every year. You just have to get the stock up there, and then, then you've got to flow, and you've got to get 5 to 10% of the new, new people are probably turkeys, and you've got to get rid of them. But that's sort of normal kind of personnel policy. So I'll stop there. Okay, thanks very much, Rick. Um, congratulations. <laughs> so the next speaker is uh, Steve Machen. Steve is, uh, I'm sure you know, Thank professor you. at University College London. He's also the research director here at the, uh, at the CEP. Um, Steve has uh, done a huge amount of research in all the areas of applied micro and labour economics. Um, particularly, he's here today to talk about work in the economics of education, of which he's uh, a leading thinker. Uh, he's worked on huge amounts of different areas, including the very influential work on school academies and autonomy, school resources and school choice. And he also is very engaged and lots of policy making activity. For example, he's a member of the uh, Pay Commission, which helps set the minimum wage in this country. So, Steve Major. Thanks. Okay, so um, when, I, when I was going to start doing this talk, I had several ways I thought I might organise it. And in the end, I was either going to do something very, very much about the nitty gritty of what works in schools or do something uh, about uh, the labour market as well. And I decided on the latter to talk about the big picture. Um, in, in terms of things, I will come back to schools at the end. So I, I guess the you know relevant issues, if you're thinking about uh, how human capital uh, might be geared up to uh, to improve growth, uh, well it's pretty undeniable from some of those charts that Rick's just shown that skills and education and workforce do matter for productivity and do matter for overall growth. I guess the key policy questions are how can you harness uh, the human capital uh, accumulation process and how these skills and education levels that follow from that, how can they be harnessed to generate productivity improvements and growth? Uh, so I'm going to talk very much about the UK context, not surprisingly. Um, so I guess it follows on quite well from the international stuff that, that Rick has just um, uh, given. Um, so in the UK context, there's a number of positives you can find and there's a number of negatives you can find in this regard. On some dimensions, we do pretty well. Uh, and it's no surprise where we do pretty well. We do pretty well at the top, the top end of the education distribution, and I'll show some, some numbers about that. Uh, where we don't do very well is towards the middle part and the lower part of the education distribution. And so what I'm going to try and do is use this tool to try and highlight where we do better and where we do worse and try and place that into an appropriate policy context. Okay. So what I'm going to talk about, I'll just give some outline material on education participation trends and the levels of education held by the workforce. I'll talk about differences in wages for different groups, talk about productivity differences. Uh, then I'll come to the, uh, the thorny issues of the, of the very fundamental basic skills problems that we still have amongst uh, the population um, in, in, in the UK. Uh, and then I'll say what the sources of those tend to be, and of course that takes us back to schools. Uh, and I'll talk about inequalities in school and uh, school policies. And then I'll give a summary which should refer back to some of the policy questions at the end. Okay. So uh, here's some numbers on staying on rates and participation in higher education, some charts showing show what's happened. So you see, you see some kind of success over time in, in, in both these charts. 
Uh, but you also see some kind of stagnation going on, uh, particularly in this staying on chart. Let's see. So black lines, everybody. The purple line is uh, is women, and the green line is men. And so there was a big increase in staying on rates after the compulsory school leaving age that occurred um, in the late 80s, early 90s. And then it was very, very stagnant until you get to mid-2000s. And there has been a bit of a pickup, not surprisingly perhaps, in the recession years when some children have stayed on. But we've kind of got this stagnant process here where quite a large number of people don't stay on after a compulsory school leaving age, some 25-30%. Uh, and this puts us very badly in international terms, if we compare this in international terms. We've got a big chunk of people who don't stay on after age 16 at school. Uh, what's happening in higher education? Well, we know there's been a huge expansion of higher education. And partly, in part following this, this, um, this increase in staying on base, which was perhaps stimulated by the changing VSAM system, from O-levels to GCSEs uh, in 1988. Uh, and we see a big increase in higher education participation, uh, which is again kind of plateaued out, uh, plateaued out more recently in the, in the 2000s. Uh, there's also a notable trend there that women are doing much better than men um, in both of these dimensions. And I'm afraid that's a feature that I'm going to keep on referring to as, as, I, as I go through. But in terms of educational attainment, women have been doing rather well, uh, men have been doing rather badly, uh, and increasingly badly over time. A feature that's also true in the US uh, in, the re in recent years. Um, so this is the share of uh, different qualifications. Uh, I take the point that Vic says that we need to think about quality of, 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 of qualification levels that people have as well. There isn't a very appropriate point that I'll make about this. Um, in in, in the, some numbers I, I put together from the labor force surveys over time between 1981 and 2011. Um, and so you can see different things here. You can paint a nice story or you can paint a not very nice story when you, come, when you kind of look at this. So at the top end, we've seen lots of people um, getting, getting into higher education and getting an undergraduate degree or higher. Um, so for men, it was 7% back in 1981. That rises to 31% by 2011. Equivalent numbers are 3% back in 1981 for women, right up to 30% and convergence um, with, the, with the men um, by the time you get to 2011. This is the whole workforce. This is people aged 26 to 60. Um, so, of course, if we've done the more recent flows, the women will be higher than the men um, by now. Um, so that looks pretty good. It also looks pretty good in the postgraduate dimension. There's quite a lot more people getting postgraduate qualifications as well. So this kind of quest for more and more education at the top end um, seems to be something, something that's going on. It also looks quite good when you look at the proportion with no qualifications. We used to have a lot of people who leave school with no educational qualifications at all. Plummets down from 55% in 1981 to 5% by 2011 for men. Again, 5% for women. Uh, where have they gone? Well, I'm afraid they've only got, a lot of them have only gone into the intermediate A, which is some form of qualifications. And I'm afraid some of these intermediate A qualifications are very poor levels. So a lot of the people in this group that's got much bigger, the intermediate A group, uh, which, is, which is people who've stayed on at school uh, but have got some, and have got some qualifications. I'm afraid a lot of them are very low vocational qualifications that don't yield a return, um, <coughs> both for men and for, and for women. Yeah. So we've seen big changes in the distribution of educational qualifications, some good, some perhaps not quite so good. Uh, what's happened to the wages of people with different educational qualifications? Well, the, the, the short uh, one-line one story is the graduates have done really well, the rest have done pretty badly. Um, so we have this really big increase in the supply of graduates, uh, about 5% of uh, the workforce, just over 5% of the workforce had a degree in 1980. 
If it goes to 2008, it's about a quarter. And as, as I said before, it goes up about 31% by 2011. Um, so what's happened to their wages? Well, they've done better. Even though there's many more of them out there, they've done better, which says that employers are increasingly demanding, um, demanding graduates. So the relative wage was about one and a half. The typical grad, the average graduate got paid about one and a half times as much as the average non-graduate in 1980. It goes up to something like 1.64 or something by 2008. And it stayed up. Even though you've had this really big increase in supply, it stayed up and hasn't fallen. So the graduates are doing much better. Um, uh, on the other hand, that means the non-graduates are doing much worse in terms of their relative wages. Now, we know from the labor market literature there's things like technological change that have been important in shaping these kinds of, these kinds of patterns. But I think it's more than that in the UK context, given that we, we haven't equipped the people in the middle with the appropriate skills to compete with the graduates at the time. Uh, here's another example. The postgraduates are doing even better than the undergraduates over time in Britain as well, something that people don't know very much about. But the, the typical postgraduate got about 6 or 7% higher wages than somebody who stopped their undergraduate studies um, in 1996. This goes up very sharply, particularly for women. Um, uh, a lot of this is people getting one-year master's degrees, uh, especially, again, for women. Uh, but the postgraduates are doing very, very well in the labour market. So here's this quest for, I refer to this quest for more and more education again. It seems to be paying off for people who are in engaging in this quest for more and more education. Okay. So what about this intermediate level group, and, and indeed the lower group? Well, they've been losing out um, for many reasons, I think. But in part because they don't have the requisite skills to use the new technologies that graduates are actually benefiting from. <coughs> uh, so in this group, there's a lot of people who've got poor levels of education and skills. And as I'll show you soon, in more in this kind of group than in other countries. Um, so this is a very, very important group to focus on, I think. And if you do start focusing on this group, there's very big deficiencies in basic skills. Uh, and when I mean basic skills, I mean literacy skills, numeracy skills, ICT skills. Um, so amongst this low-level qualification group and the no-qualifications group that, that, that do contribute to this. So basically, I'll show you some numbers which are unfortunately a bit out of date because we haven't got any newer numbers until the OECD produces its new survey that's actually out in the field uh, last year and this year, the PIAC survey, the Adult Competencies Survey uh, that's being undertaken. So we'll have some very valuable information soon to look at a more recent picture. But if you look at the International Adult Literacy Survey data, it's been quoted lots. Uh, we see this long lower tail of the distribution of basic skills, both literacy skills and numeracy skills. In Britain, we see the same kind of thing in the US, uh, but you don't see it in other countries like Sweden, Germany, and Finland. So here's some numbers from up the Isles, uh, some stuff Anna Vignoles did ages ago. Um, what's interesting here is you can actually break down the, uh, break down the percent doing badly beneath files level two. Uh, across age groups. And so not only do you see this big clustering of, uh, of, of people in Britain down in the lower part of the numeracy distribution or the literacy distribution, it doesn't seem to have got much better um, over time across, across cohorts either. Uh, so we've kind of got this, this problem here in, I mean the US has got very bad over time, um, but we've got this problem that we've got a large fraction of the new entrants to the labor force who have very, very poor basic literacy and numeracy skills. It's also true, you can, you can get information on ICT skills as well. It applies to ICT skills as well. Okay. So the UK has traditionally had more low achievers. 
Here's some fairly old numbers from Nick Crafts and Mary O'Mahony, showing uh, the proportion of the, of the workforce in different, in different time periods uh, with uh, low skills, intermediate skills, and high skills. And again, so here's the UK. You've got this big chunk here, which, which remained persistent over time. Not very many people in the real middle part of inter intermediate skills distribution. And then pretty good at the top part, the graduate part. We're very good at the graduate part um, in, in terms of what we've been doing. So traditionally, we've had more low-level achievers. Uh, I took the European Labour Force Survey yesterday and had a little look at what, about what the picture is, what the picture is now on ISCID levels uh, one and two, which is low, which is um, pre, uh, which is a lower secondary completion and lower, uh, which is the black, uh, the black line. Then there's the intermediate group, and then there's the graduates, which is the purple line, the purple bar. Okay, so we can see a picture here where we've got many more. Uh, men in particular, uh, in this very low level, even in 2009, where, where the black bar is. And we do pretty well in the purple bar at the top. Then we've got far fewer people in the middle part of the, of the, of the skills distribution. Okay. So these kind of skill shortfalls in the middle part and the lower part of the education distribution mean graduates have been doing very well. The, le the, the lower, le lower levels in graduates have not been doing very well. And so, of course, one consequence we've had is that wage inequality has risen very sharply, driven by these increased returns to, um, to graduates who seem to have the requisite skills to work with new technologies that are coming into workplaces. And it seems that the other guys don't have the skills to do it. So we've seen, also seen a hollowing out in the middle part of the employment distribution as well. So this is probably quite important because it does seem that the scope for productivity gains for well-trained and skilled non-graduate workforce uh, has been diminished um, in, in, in Britain. Uh, you know, as, for example, compared to the Germany where the manufacturing base has stayed higher and where we've got many more intermediate-level skilled workers, partly through the apprenticeship program that operates there. Okay. So also within the hardcore of low achievers, we've got this group of NEETs, those who are not in employment, education or training, which seems to be very, very persistent over time. I mean, John's been working on this. And it's very hard to erode this. And these, of course, have got very, very low basic skills. Um, especially young men who are a bigger share, increasingly through time amongst, amongst the needs. Um, so I guess the last thing I want to talk about is the problems, these problems of low achievement for part of it, this part of the education distribution can at least in part, and probably almost entirely, be traced back to the compulsory school system. Okay. So I'm going to make a few comments about this. I know Luke is going to talk more about different kinds of school structures. Okay, but there's a couple of observations to make to start. The pattern from schools does confirm this, but it's also true the UK has a bunch of pupils that do very well in the international test scores. Uh, they also have some that do very badly. So one example, I wouldn't want to place too much emphasis on this one, but if you take the children from private schools, uh, they do just as well as all the other high achievers um, in PISA. So there's a really big private school, state school gap in PISA 2009, for example. So the PISA test scores are all standardised to have a mean of 500. So if you look at the gap between the average gap between private and state school-educated children um, in reading, maths, and science, they're pretty big. They're 61, 56, and 73, which is a pretty big proportion of the 500, um, the 500 mean. Um, at the same time, uh, the UK looks pretty unequal in terms of the gradient with respect to family background. So I've taken the PISA numbers again. I hope people can see this. And uh, taken the... The, the relationship between, there's a measure, I don't have time to talk about it, there's a measure of family background, which is a combination of income, books at home, uh, various other things from PISA. And you can look at the relationship between uh, test scores and that family background measure. 
So the UK look, ranks pretty high. It's up here. So Mina is actually 494 in, 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 in Britain. But it's in the kind of top 10 of these gradients, suggesting a quite rather unequal distribution of test scores across family background. So Indonesia has the lowest, and New Zealand has the highest. It's kind of across all those countries. So this naturally leads on to the question about what can be done in schools to better reach and deliver a better education to the low achievers. Okay, so there's a huge academic literature, part of which Rick has already referred to, on what works better in generating improved outcomes for children in schools. So I think the recent experience in England is actually, yeah, that's fine, is the recent English experience is also is quite interesting in this regard because there have been a number of education policies that are introduced in attempts to drive up standards. And I can only talk very briefly about this, but we might think they're organised perhaps about incentives for schools, teachers and pupils, uh, changing choice and competition, and available for choice for parents, competition among schools, uh, changing school structures to generate more autonomy and improve governance, perhaps changing curriculum. So those are some of the main, main areas. So let me just say some very, I've got about six general conclusions that we'll probably be drawn. So we know from the school effectiveness literature that schools do matter, uh, but perhaps not as much as the family background and the family environment. Uh, a second observation is the educational achievement of boys relative to girls, especially boys from poor backgrounds, has been getting worse and worse um, over time. Uh, so boys are doing very badly. Uh, some boys are doing very badly at school. Uh, we also know, so he said, it teachers clearly matter for various and people achievement. Uh, the policies on incentives, choice, and competition show much more mixed evidence, perhaps because they're not particularly that well targeted. Uh, and in that mixed evidence, there is some evidence of some performance improvements. But there's also some suggestions of rising inequality as well. So while some people do, whilst the average might win out a bit, there's also evidence of increased inequality. So the people at the bottom may be further falling further, even further back. Uh, as Rick has again already said, I've used the same term, non-targeted non throwing money at schools. Uh, doesn't seem to be particularly effective. It may, may be linked to managerial quality in schools. Uh, John's been doing stuff on um, doing management surveys in, in schools, and there's clearly quite high variance of managerial skills amongst head teachers, for example, in English, in English schools. Uh, in some scenarios, changing school types might work, although I would say that Finland does operate, Finland, the model that's always held up, operates a standard community school Time type structure where people just go to their local school and they don't really care that much about which school they go to. Uh, yet they're always held up as the model in PISA that's best performing, what uh, aim to get for. But there is some evidence, perhaps it's early days on some of this evidence, like the Academy's program in, in, in England and the Charter Schools program in the US, that perhaps maybe in places where the managerial structure is not very good to start with. Uh, that, that, that improving, um, in sh shifting school structures to generate better autonomy and perhaps better improved governance can actually work in driving up standards. Okay, so let me summary. Let me give a summary. So there's good and not so good aspects of the human capital structure of the UK population in terms of scope to improve growth. Uh, which I suppose is a good thing if you're trying to set up a growth commission that can improve things. So not so good things can be focused upon and perhaps can be, can be, can be emphasised. So we do pretty well at the top end of the education distribution. We produce highly skilled, internationally competitive graduates. In the middle end and the bottom end, we do much less well. And we clearly have a bigger concentration of low achievers uh, than do other countries, or, or some other countries. I mean, the US does pretty badly on that as well. Um, so basic skills problems, I think it's undeniable, are a, a, a fundamental issue here in the lower part of the ability distribution. Uh, so graduates have done much better more recently. Non-graduates have lost out. Uh, this may well have negative consequences for productivity, and at the same time, inequality has gone up. 
So my, my, my challenge to the Commission is this thing at the end. I do think that with careful evidence-based thought and policy design, it can be feasible to improve the skills base to generate growth without necessarily having to experience the additional cost of rising in employment. Our final speaker is um, Professor Dr. Ludger Vosman. Um, and uh, Ludger is a professor of economics uh, in the uh, Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, as well as being the uh, head of the Department of Human Capital and Innovation, and he's worked extensively in many areas of the economics of education. We're particularly interested in his sort of comparative views on uh, the UK from a kind of German uh, perspective. German's often held up as uh, an example of where, say, the apprenticeship system works very well. People have discussed this already. So um, one of our interests is, you know, what can we learn from, from other continental European countries? Right, yeah. Thanks a lot uh, for having me. That's exactly the type of perspective I will try to give, because a lot of what I'm talking about is based on these international comparisons that we've comparisons that we've already heard a little bit about. Um, so it's really very nice that I am the third speaker, so I can capitalize on the twice 15 minutes that uh, my previous speakers have, have given. Point one is that, uh, just reiterating what, what Rick has initially said, so basically I skipped that. It's just, I mean, I would have said exactly the, set, the same. I want to say a bit on spending levels, but there again, actually, Rick has done the basic picture, and I don't want to spend much time on that, because the truth is that in particular cross countries, but also most of the research that has been done within individual countries, shows that, the, that any things like particular class sizes and so on, on average, are really not the big thing that uh, will lead you to uh, very much better performance. And so um, I'm really just going to give my talk on these uh, uh, point three and four. The, the third one is on institutional <coughs> reforms. And here I first going to uh, focus on the school level with having in mind exactly what Rick and uh, Steve have already said, that that's actually where the basis is laid for, for anything that, that goes on later on. And I will actually also put in a few more comments on things that happen throughout the whole life cycle of, of a person, um, which will partly also actually refer to apprentices and so let me skip all this here. I mean, maybe with just adding one uh, minor remark here on, I mean, this, I mean, the whole point of this is having a very long run view. Um, actually, a recent ev evidence that we've presented where we actually looked at very neat Prussian data in the 19th century, in part actually going back to the 18th century, shows that actually, actually uh, education actually was all, already very important for. Uh, the development during the Industrial Revolution, something that I, mean, I want to put out here in England, because I think the state of the art in economic history, which was based on the British Industrial Revolution, is that actually formal education there was probably not very important. It definitely was uh, uh, in the in the follower country, Germany, and it's most. Uh, it may well be that actually the difference is just about data quality, where we actually don't have the relevant data in Britain. It may be otherwise, but so actually the importance of education is something. For, for long-term development is something that has been around for a very long while. Um, so let me skip as well uh, discussion of, of resources, of teacher quality that we've heard, and um, jump right into uh, my third part. And this is about the question, so now if, if these cognitive skills uh, are so important, what can be done? Um, and the basic view that I think many people in this area and the economics of education have, have developed is that 
I mean, given that spending doesn't translate so well into higher achievement, that maybe because there's just been a set of decisions and incentives in the system that just make sure that the resources are not used in a way that really furthers student achievement. And so a very basic view here is that the best way um, to make sure that, that uh, the money is used wisely is to ensure that everybody that works in the system, that includes teachers, heads of schools, but also parents and students themselves, have incentives to focus on improving student outcomes. That's a very like general basic statement, but uh, I think that's uh, very important because a lot of education systems are basically geared in a way that actually ignores student outcomes and just whatever looks at inputs, for example. Or looks, looks at like enrollment rates, but not at uh, what students actually learn. So just focusing everybody's attention on student outcomes, I think, is, is a key basic idea in anything that will work in terms of improving student outcomes. So a bit more concrete than what could that mean. Um, these incentives are uh, strongly determined by basically the institutional framework of the school system. So about uh, anything, the rules and regulations that, that uh, govern this, uh, the school system. Um, and either these rules and regulations like provide incentives, like uh, give um, rewards for people who actually work to improve student outcomes, or they don't. And that may, in principle, make all the difference. And actually, I, I'll, I'll give you three examples that fall into general um, areas that, that are, uh, are being discussed. Uh, which is accountability in the school system, autonomy of schools, and the whole issue of choice and competition that Steve has already referred to a little bit. Where interestingly, in particular, also the international evidence, where we, for example, don't see anything, any correlation with spending levels, actually sh uh, shows a lot of very strong uh, results that, that are suggestive that these three areas are indeed very important in terms of student outcomes. So let me just give you one example picture of these things. One idea of how to uh, <coughs> increase accountability in the system that I actually think is a very cute idea is to have external exit exams in a school system. That basically exams at the end of school that test what students have learned and that uh, um, so basically that, that in a sense makes schools accountable for what at the end of the day student, uh, the student outcome really is. Um, if you, uh, let me start by, by giving you the basic picture and then, then uh, discuss how to interpret this. Um, this picture is just based on the TIMS test, which is like very equivalent to the PISA test. Uh, we have like some close to 50 country, uh, countries uh, in these tests and the individual student level data for all students. And so these things, uh, these, these, what I'm going to show you is based on regressions that control for, I think, 40 to 50 background variables at the individual student level in terms of family background, all the things that we're in, in terms of class size and uh, the teacher education and all, uh, and so on and so forth. And then uh, it adds these institutional structures, uh, uh, variables. So one is whether in the school system they have centralized exit exams or not. And the second one, the second dimension I want to plot up here is whether schools have autonomy, yes or no. And that's like basically drawn from uh, school background questionnaires in these, in these tests. So it's measured at the school level. Um, and just as an example, it's school autonomy, whether schools have some say about uh, aspects of teacher salaries. And um, in the vertical axis, I'm going to show you like the conditional and all the other things, the, the difference in student performance on these TIMS uh, math scores. 
And what you see if you compare uh, conditionally performance of uh, autonomous and non-autonomous schools in countries that do not, do not have this accountability device, you actually see a negative uh, association between autonomy and student outcomes, meaning actually students in these systems perform worse if their schools have autonomy. Now the interesting thing is what happens uh, in countries or school systems that have centralized exit exams. The first thing is, and we've seen that again and again on actually dozens of studies, both across countries, also within countries where regions have and have not uh, central exams, the blue uh, bars are much higher. So you see much higher performance in, in uh, school systems that have this form of an accountability system. But additionally, actually the, the effect of school autonomy, or the association if you will, um, turns around completely into a significant positive association in the sense that students perform best when there is accountability in the system, but if there's accountability in the system, then if their schools have autonomy to basically find the best way to achieve uh, this, this set goal that is also uh, uh, externally tested at the end. So um, I guess that, that's something there where, where you have these like kind of broad picture, but there was a lot of country-specific evidence as well that actually fits quite neatly into this uh, into this general pattern. And in more recent research, actually jointly with, with Rick uh, and Susanna Ling, we actually uh, see this more clearly in, in panel fixed effects model, where you actually see that um, the autonomy effect uh, appears quite negative in poorly performing countries, whereas it's actually performing much better in high performing or high developed countries. So um, the basic idea is. Um, you have to have the information on the quality of the outcome out in the system. Otherwise, like a general, uh, whatever, more choice-based or market-based system cannot work. But if that's out there, um, then it's indeed the case, actually, that, that local agents know best on how to uh, achieve these goals, uh, and they will do so. But if, if they're, they're not made accountable, uh, accountable for what's coming out in the end, they will use their autonomy for anything, but probably not for uh, improving the outcomes. And that's what you definitely see. These effects are extremely large. If you compare maybe this, and so a grade level equivalent, so the equivalent of what students learn uh, on average in one year is somewhere between 35 and 40 on the TIMS test. So you can see actually these are huge differences. Um, and the second picture in the same regard on institutions um, relates to um, competition from privately operated schools. So uh, the public-private um, division of, of tasks in the school system is, of course, an important question. And um, a basic point that's got to be made here is there's differences between the funding side and the operation side uh, of whether uh, private uh, agents enter the field. If you put here the average share of government funding uh, of a school uh, in a country, meaning actually a lot of countries are close to 100% here, but there's many countries actually where it's substantially lower, where there's a lot of uh, school fees and other contributions where actually uh, you have private funding, for example, for, for the private schools here in, uh, here in England. Um, and here you have the share of privately operated schools in the country. Um, where again, there are some countries where there are very few, but there's other countries um, where this share is very high. Um, 
and and here it's important to um, to note that I, I'm actually putting in the average country-level shares of government funding and country-level shares of privately operated schools because the idea is not to see whether private schools themselves are better than uh, public-operated schools, but rather actually a more, in a sense, competitive competitive environment in a in a system where actually you have larger choices between different school operators makes a difference for average performance. Um, so if there's any selection between private and public schools, this will basically cancel out at the, at the system level. Um, now, privately operated is, is a bit vague here. It should actually be seen uh, that, that basically the management, uh, um, the ultimate decision making in, the, in management is not with the public agency. Um, that's, that's a defining uh, theme here. So it, most of these will be uh, uh, kind of NGOs or church-based um, uh, operators. What you see basically is um, first that actually in the school level, um, having private funding going from back uh, to, to the front is actually negative. Or putting the other way, actually it's, it's important that the state does give clear funding for high-quality schools to each and every uh, child in the system. Whereas um, in the operation side, it's the other way around. And you clearly see that the, the larger the share of non-government-run schools, um, the higher the outcome. So the, the example country that actually falls at the back here, where you have, have the highest performance in the general sense, it's again based on this uh, uh, regression analysis and their uh, that's um, the Netherlands. So in the Netherlands, three quarters of students, of 15-year-old students, um, go to schools that are not government or, uh, operated, so privately operated schools. But actually in this constitution of, of the Netherlands, it's said that basically each and every school gets the same amount of government funding. So actually they, these, these privately operated schools get exactly the same amount of government money than government operated schools. What happens there is that parents actually do get choice between different op uh, options, and they know it if you talk to people there, and uh, that creates some sort of uh, competition between schools, not between, between students, but between schools, to make sure that they are not losing out, because, I mean, as soon as you, you like parents hear that a school is really doing badly, I mean, they have an easy way to go to an alternative, and they do, and that basically ensures a higher level of performance. If you go into the details, you actually see that like this increased competition actually does not only affect the private school sector, but in the same way the public school sector. So public schools in these countries also do much better than public schools in countries where you just have public schools. So in this general overall setting, so you can, a lot of things can go very wrong in terms of choice. And you basically, the one easiest thing you see is that if you uh, make the, the uh, the accessibility to, to uh, these alternative schools dependent on on the money of your parents, for example. That would actually uh, lead to adverse effects usually. Um, but on the general level, these kinds of things seem to be very important for uh, aggregate outcomes. We actually have some additional work here uh, that, that actually suggests there are some IB models that suggest that these things are most likely causal in the sense of an effect of these school competition. Um, the final points I want to make are in this area of life cycle policies. Um, let me give you a very stylized picture that basically based on what Jim Heckman always says in this area. He basically says if you if you have one pound to be spent at different stages of education, uh, the rate of return 
will in general be uh, falling with the age of the person. So basically the rate of return uh, of, of a pound invested in early childhood is much higher than in uh, adult trading. That's a general uh, um, stylized picture. Actually, there, there's important uh, exceptions from this. There may be actually early childhood intervention programs that are very low uh, return, or actually there may be a few uh, adult education programs that are very successful. But on, in general, I think most people and I would, would agree to this general pattern. There's a second aspect to that, actually. I think uh, <coughs> that that's generally um, um, emphasized is that the highest returns at the early ages are, uh, are there for disadvantaged children. Exactly the, the, the lower end part that, that Steve has talked about here, where actually for them it makes all the difference whether they get like a high quality early childhood like enrichment uh, um, surrounding compared to people from like well-off uh, families where at home they would like kind of get the same type of enrichment. So here it's highest and for them actually the returns fall uh, the strongest. Um, so in a sense you want to uh, think about where you are investing this, these, unfortunately, are not the very latest data. I uh, didn't have the time to update that. But in general, it seems that on these OECD data, the UK actually doesn't seem to look all that bad on uh, uh, public expenditure in pre-primary. Public expenditure on uh, on tertiary is just below OECD. But in a sense, and like if you think about these re uh, returns in, in terms of a public return, that's actually make it makes quite a lot of sense. Where you see the spending is very low, seems to be the school level compared to other things. Um, this, uh, let, let me jump across this, but Steve has talked about the fact that actually in PISA you see the fact that student outcomes in the UK uh, depend much more on family background than in most other countries. And the same actually can be said for Germany. Um, we did a comparative study where we then see what are there systematic things that countries that have lower family background dependence and other so lower inequality of opportunity than other countries that they do do systematically different than those that where outcomes depend a lot on student uh, or on family background and this is England and Germany actually Scotland is right up here as well um, and what we find is that indeed uh, pre-primary education making sure that basically everybody goes to uh, has access to early childhood education and of a, re, uh, uh, of a uh, reasonable duration are actually aspects that make sure that at the end of the school uh, outcomes do not depend as much on family background. And so this may be one very important leverage where, where policy can uh, intervene in particular in terms of these low end that, that Steve has talked about. The only other thing actually that is there is that early tracking of schools like is very detrimental for uh, in terms of inequality but I want to skip that. Yeah, I, I have two, two final comments. The one is on the apprenticeship type of things that actually currently I, I know are very en vogue uh, in a lot of European countries because I see Germany is currently doing well and we have had this long tradition here. Um, Rick and I, together with Lei Zheng, have recently done this research where we actually look at labor market outcomes using the same IELTS data that Steve had um, uh, for whether you 
had a vocational uh, education or uh, a general education. So vocation is the, the idea is that you are trained into a very specific occupation-specific skill. Um, and the hope is that this facilitates labor market entry because you're more, more directly geared to labor market uh, demands. In general, this is the more general basic uh, skills that uh, where you then hope that on the job you learn the specific skills as well. Um, if you look at employment probabilities for the two groups, um, at very young age we actually do see this difference in the sense that it seems to be easier for people with a vocational education to get into the labor market. But there's a second side to this medal, and that's uh, at older age, and that's something that's often ignored, and I think that has to be kept in mind when discussing these things. So in a sense, like vocational training may well actually be a good idea to make sure that you, uh, that you enter the labor market in a decent way. But in the world where we're living, where things are changing all the time, we've got technological change, structural changes, where whole industries move to, to other continents. What we do see is like if you've got very occupation-specific skills, the likelihood that you get out of employment at older age increases substantially. And that's not the case for people with general education. And this general pattern you can see in particular for these countries like Germany that have these apprenticeship systems. So there's two, I'm getting cut off here, yeah. two sides to the market. Sorry, no, uh, can I'm, you just wrap up, Luca? I'm, I'm wrapping up. I mean, the, the, the final point is investments, whether the state should invest in uh, adult education. And there, actually, the main point of recent studies is that uh, unfortunately, that seems to be rather ineffective in the sense that you mostly get those people who would do it anyway. So it's very hard for the state to intervene there. That's the final thing I wanted to say. Okay, thank you very much. Oh, yes, could you all. Uh, and uh, could we switch the projector off, please, as well? So it doesn't blind the speakers. <laughs> So um, I think if it's all right with the, the other commissioners, maybe what, I mean, there seems to be a reasonable amount of consensus on many things in the panel, in the sense that um, resources by themselves don't really seem to be the, the issue. And it's much more what you do with those resources. And the focus you've all had has been on, on, the, on the schooling side, more so than, say, the post-schooling side of vocation, or even the pre-schooling side like uh, um, the kind of Jim Hetman type of work. So we'll go on to that. I know that some commissioners are particularly interested in that, but maybe we should start with schooling to begin with. And um, I'd like to, um, let's go back to Rick's presentation. So, I mean, your emphasis, Rick, was very much on the importance of, of teachers and the school effects and also importance and observable things about teachers, like what you pay them and so on, even that's not so important. It's, you know, so so that, that sounds rather depressing in some ways, you know, what can you do? But then you, you got on to what you could do at the end, which was to say, well, almost ex post, we can observe the value added or quality of teachers, and we could do things, and you said deselect, basically kicking out bad teachers. So is that really the only? So, so is that really the only thing? So it's really it's all about simply removing the lower tail of underperforming teachers, placing them with better teachers. And if that is the way, you know, what 
institutionally what is the right way to do it, breaking the teachers' unions, changing employment regulation, or other, other ways in which you could also get that result as well. I mean, for example, having incentive pay which is tied to value-added schools. So could I push you a bit more on what are the, the, what are the policy implications of, of the focus on teacher quality and teacher effect? What do they mean? Sure. What can we do to, to, really, to really achieve that? So the, um, the, my presentation was really dovetailed with Luther. We had actually colluded beforehand. Um, the, the way I generally think about this is that you need a set of institutions that tend to drive toward higher quality teachers. That's what I see as autonomy of decision making. At the local level, you can make some decisions about who's doing well and who isn't. Um, I see that as choice that uh, parents flee away from schools if they have a bunch of bad teachers or if their kids get bad teachers and presumably try to get into to other schools. I see that in accountability and uh, exit exams that Luther had as uh, identifying which schools are doing well and sort of putting pressure on those that aren't, which I, I view this all as, as working through teachers. Now what the, what's happened in the U.S. Uh, of late, um, you know, I have phrased this in terms of the bottom end of the distribution because I think the evidence is that there are people that are very harmful there. There's been evidence uh, first that you don't have to actually measure test scores and calculate value-added scores because principals are headmasters in schools and parents, I think, other teachers certainly and probably the janitors in schools know who are the people that are really bad and who are the people that are really good. And that's all you care about in some sense. It's not that you really want to line up everybody in a row. You want to worry about the people that are completely ineffective and that are harming kids. And you want to worry, about, you want to worry also about keeping the, the few people that we all remember in our own history that had a significant impact on our life that were really at the other end of the distribution. And here are some policies in that direction. What's happened in the U.S. Uh, briefly is that um, uh, there's been an emphasis on these value-added scores, in, including um, the Los Angeles Times two years ago and the New York Times uh, three weeks ago publishing the value-added scores for their teachers in the newspaper which I think is horrid personnel policy to run your personnel policy uh, through the schools, I mean through the newspapers, but I think it's exceptionally strong and, and good policy for the U.S. to have these people publish this because what I see it is doing is pushing the schools and the teachers unions to get together and figure out how do you actually develop an evaluation system for teachers if you don't like value-added scores based upon test scores, how should we evaluate teachers? People have talked about this for a long time and they just never do anything about it. But if the alternative is something that they don't want, uh, the New York Times publishing these scores, then they're going to develop evaluation systems. Uh, it's happening. Uh, Washington, D.C., which is a horrible school system in general, the worst in the U.S., um, has moved to an evaluation system for their teachers that includes value-added scores, half of your rating is value-added scores if you have that, but that's only a minority of teachers. 
What it really has is regular evaluations of teachers by trained observers that go into classrooms and so forth, and, and then they use that information. So if you're in the bottom ranking of evaluations for two years in a row, you're going to be dismissed. If you're in the top ranking for two years in a row, your base pay can go up by as much as $20,000. And so there's a, they're starting to evaluate teachers in a rigorous way and to use that information uh, to make decisions. So you, would, you wouldn't emphasize any particular measure per se, but rather the arguments of giving more autonomy to schools, having exit exams so there is information to measure them, and then letting the system basically drive, drive, drive out the, the, the worst. Yeah, but worst one, one that. Is, that, is that sufficient? Though, right? Well, I mean, I, is I, that really going to work? Is it? It's certainly there are parts of this that all add up. I mean, accountability by itself has some positive impact. It doesn't do everything. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure that this personnel system will do everything, but it all adds up. The one thing I should emphasize that I tried to, to say, but your 15 minutes didn't allow it. Um, if, you, if you talk about performance pay for teachers, you have to have the same system, basically, for the managers, the, the principals in the schools, because you want them working in the same direction. I mean, that's partly what exit exams are all about, getting people working in the same direction. But you want to have them making consistent decisions on the same basis. Um, Steve, do you, do you want to come in at all here on, on terms of this teacher issue? How, I mean, you emphasize very much this issue about the inequality and the failure of the UK system to do things about the, you know, the bottom 50% or bottom third pupils. So would you, do you think the issue really is about getting those, those underperforming kids to have good teachers, basically? And how, how would you, if you, if you took Rick's view on what it's all about good teachers, how do you get those good teachers to work for the bad kids. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have one extra observation, I guess, which, which, which I know looks well, uh, which is if you look at um, the, the early age test scores of, of teachers, uh, you know, before they enter the teaching profession, must decline quite a lot of the time. There's a nice paper by Steve Nicol and Glenda Quintini, where they demonstrate about using British data, that the people entering the teaching profession in more recent cohorts have much lower maths and reading scores from early ages, which says something about the quality of mostly graduates entering the, uh, entering the teaching profession. Uh, but I think there's a wider observation that follows from that, which is a kind of society-wide observation, uh, that the, the standing of teachers in society has kind of changed well. And I think there's something to be said for a reprofessionalization of, of teachers, so it's actually thought of. I mean, that may be associated with uh, proper compensation or improved compensation. But a kind of idea that you know, actually trying to encourage graduates to go into, into a high, you know, higher level graduates to go into teaching strikes me as an important thing. And Teach First has done a bit of that. Um, I mean, if it was if it was salaries, of course, that's resources, right? So that it is expensive. Yes, but, it, yes, but it's targeted resources. I mean, you know, you notice I said non-target, throwing non-targeted resources at schools is not the right thing. So just giving, you know, writing a check is not the right thing. Uh, but obviously teacher salaries can be something that could be potentially important. But also conditions of work and so on. I mean, it's also true that accountability, increased accountability may be something that would be putting off people entering the teaching profession because there's much more bureaucracy and so on. And, you know, it may be something they don't want to do. Um, so I think this kind of reprofessionalization of the teaching, uh, the teaching staff is actually quite an, quite an important thing. And that can go alongside 
aspects of improved autonomy and, and, uh, and better governance in places where those mechanisms aren't working very well to start with. Uh, uh, just sure. jump in here. Mm -hmm. You didn't take up uh, John's point though about teacher unions and whether you think they're a force for good or a force for conservatism in relation to this. I mean, I'll, I'll ask, just throw that out there. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, teacher unions quite rightly oppose some of the changes there. That have, that have been put forward if they're on, if they're if they're putting increased pressures on the staff, which is what a union uh, should be doing. Um, and so, you know, this increased accountability can have both positive aspects, in the sense that you know you, there's more transparency about things, but it can also have negative aspects as well. Uh, and, and one of those, I think, could be potentially to deterring people from deterring people we would like to become teachers and not becoming teachers um, as well. On the other hand, you know, we know unions want fixed pay scales, they've always had done traditionally, and, and don't want career progression uh, beyond those fixed pay scales. Although, of course, many unions have been getting much more flexible about that, and they've had to because of the, of the, of the, of the climate. Uh, you know, I mean, teaching unions kind of do what, what, what it, do what's written on the can. Uh, they behave like unions in, in, the teaching, in, the teaching, in the teaching profession. Uh, and so I think the interaction between unions is, is something, but it's not. Just a couple of things. I, mean, I remember uh, Andrew Adonis, when he was schools minister, and went on the trip that every schools minister has to go to, to Finland, and, <laughs> and, and came back and ashen-faced, because he'd asked a bunch of head teachers what their biggest problem was, and he was told it was the number of teachers who wanted time off to finish their PhDs, which <laughs> But I, I'd like to tease out a bit more, if I could, about the sort of family backgrounds, because I think all your models uh, depend on engaged parents. I mean, everything you've said uh, argues that uh, parents make uh, choices and actively you know, see. And I, I wonder whether in the UK system it's possible, because of the because of the structure of the private independent schools with better outcomes, they sort of ambitious parents naturally gravitate as close in that direction they can, and that there are um, parts of the country, in particular, where the degree of parental engagement with the school is minimal, and so the pressures that you're saying are necessary uh, don't happen. And I wonder if that has something to do with our long tail of poor um, <coughs> performance and close correlation in this country between relative deprivation and uh, poor out school outcomes. So I'll, I'll speak from the US. Um, I got into this whole business of looking at education because of a historic study in the U.S. that basically said schools don't matter. The only thing that matters is parents. It was called the Coleman Report uh, long ago. And I thought that was crazy. Um, and so I've been working ever since. Um, it's absolutely clear that parents are an extraordinarily powerful force behind schools. I haven't spent much time thinking about that only because it's hard to think of government policies that intervene in the family that were happy to pursue. But it is also clear if you look at these uh, data on teacher effectiveness that good teachers can overcome family deficits. Um, so I'll give you two, uh, two ways to put the teacher effectiveness information into perspective. One is uh, some work that I did in Gary, Indiana, which is a very poor old industrial city in the U.S. for all poverty kids, minority kids. The difference between good schools, and, uh, good teachers in the schools and bad teachers was that 
in the, the good teachers got a year and a half worth of learning per academic year, and the bad teachers got half a year of learning per academic year. So depending upon what classroom you were assigned to could mean a whole year of learning difference. So you can see that if you added up a few of those in a row, either the good or the bad, you dramatically change the life chances of kids. The work that we've done also suggests that most of the variation in teacher quality is actually within schools and not between schools. So that you look at what we have traditionally called bad schools, which means usually that the parents are poor and not doing much, so that the overall score, level of scores is low, you find basically the same distribution of good and bad teachers there, just masked by the parental thing. The magnitude of these differences is the following. If I look at, if I look at a teacher, I'll, I'll explain the magnitude of those estimates here uh, of the variation in teacher quality. If I compare a kid who has a teacher at the 84th percentile and I rank the order compared to the average, one standard deviation above the mean in terms of teacher performance. If a kid from low income has a uh, 84th percentile teacher somewhere between three and five years in a row that can overcome the average difference between poverty and the rest of society in the U.S. So that the estimates indicate that the effect of teachers is powerful enough to overcome parental things. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do the things we want to, to try to motivate parents, but the schools are important enough in the U.S., though, it's unlikely that a kid gets three to five years in a row. Uh, in particular, since lots of kids are assigned to teachers by the headmaster in the school or the principal in the school, uh, if the principal knows that you've got a bad teacher, a stinker last year, you're likely to get a good teacher this year to make up for it. And so it averages out to an average teacher, and very, very few kids get on these trajectories of, of a string of really good or really bad. But it suggests that if you could change the quality, average quality, in the schools, you could, in fact, make up for a lot of these family background differences. Yeah, um, I think there's two dimensions of this inequality of school achievement by family background that we'd like to think about. One of which is the private school stuff. But only 7% of children go to, go to private schools. The other is the house price premium that people are prepared to pay rich people who've got money prepared to pay to move to live closer to a better performing school. Um, and we get that very strong, we get both of those very strongly in, in, this, in this country. Uh, the estimates of the house price premium are pretty big for people, people, people seem to estimate where people are prepared, the amount of money people are prepared to pay. And of course, you know, if you've got two children, it might be worth moving off and sending two kids to private schools, so you can kind of trade those kind of things off. Uh, what's up, what, what is true is you don't get either of those things happening in places um, like Finland and Germany. About 3% of children go to private school in Finland, uh, and you don't get any, 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 any house price premium for people, for people, for people, for people moving house, um, because they don't need to. Uh, that's some of the observations that Richard's kind of made about teachers being very highly qualified. Um, so I think those, both of those tend to foster um, inequalities. Uh, and tend to cluster either better performing children in some sorts of schools and worse performing children in other sorts of schools. So I think something had and has to be done about um, about these issues of disadvantaged, disadvantaged schools. 
So some things that the Labour government did do were actually quite useful on that, I think. So talking of Andrew Adonis, the Academies programme, um, actually in, in its form under Labour was to take the worst performing school in the local education authority and, um, and to convert it to an academy. And it does look like the early converters seem to have generate, generated some benefits. And that said, the new academies program is totally different, and it's, um, and it's actually schools that are above average performers that are beginning, becoming academies now. So that, that, the, the evidence we have on Labour's academies is totally, uh, it is not very applicable to the, to the, to the current program. And there was also some other programs that, that did, did, Excellence in Cities was one, but did try and allocate resources, though this was a little bit of, kind of throwing money at schools in, in some disadvantaged areas. And that seemed to yield moderate, moderate improvements, but it tended to reach the better performing children in the disadvantaged schools and didn't get to the hard to reach children at all. Um, and their, their, their performance seemed to deteriorate. But I do think, but I do think these, these observations mean that, that one has to think, well, because we do have these mechanisms, private schools, and the, the uh, proximity-based admissions to schools, which mean that people will move into, into what they perceive to be catchment areas, it's a bit porous, which don't necessarily always have a line, but you do know that if you live nearer to the school, you get in. Um, and so the fact we have those, 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 those things operating, which does generate inequality in education achievement, does seem to me to say that we need to do something about, we try to think to do something about what we can do to raise standards in, in disadvantaged schools. Um, which, of course, is how our policy agenda and has been for a long time. And it's not, to, it's not that people haven't thought about this to try, and, to try and do things. But if this does leave us with this big lower tail of people at the bottom end who seem to be leaving school with not very good um, basic skills and not very good qualification levels. Jessica. I mean, I have a very long list of questions from your presentation, but I guess I need to uh, select. So it makes, makes sense to follow up on, on the most recent things we've said. So the first one is this parental background. And here I cannot, I cannot help coming back on, on that a little bit, because um, I'm sure that the boards of private schools and, and housing premier are there. But, but I think, anecdotally, we cannot, I think, completely dismiss uh, the issue of the distribution of values uh, and importance given to education uh, by different socioeconomic groups. I mean, just very anecdotally, the UK strikes me as a country where you find much more polarization in terms of some families where education and achievement are given a very, a very, very emphasized, and some others are, are much less. And I think that's that's quite specific to the US, at least in my, in my experience. Uh, in, you know, in London in particular, I think there's only two, two kind of parents. Parents who are obsessed about education and parents who couldn't care less about education. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing in between. And, and I think that's very, very UK specific. It's something about the society as a whole and not so much about the school system. Um, and so I, I'd like to know what, you know, what your views are on that point. Um, the other thing I wanted to, uh, to, to pick up on, which seemed to me ex exceptionally important, uh, is the uh, point that, that Steve raised in, 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 a, in a previous answer on the decline in the credentials of the teachers entering the <coughs> teaching profession. And surely that, uh, I would guess at least, uh, has to be, you know, the, the main reason for that must be that teacher salaries are not kept up with salaries in the private sector, in other professions, uh, for people with similar uh, levels of education, like co college graduates in particular. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm guessing that that's true, that, that sort of you know, a, 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 a secondary school a teacher 
there's the salary relative to, uh, to the average graduate in the private sector must have collapsed over the last 20, 30 years. And that must be the reason why you think it's deterioration in the quality of, of teachers. So has there anyone tried to make some kind of uh, cost-benefit analysis of uh, what would happen if there was more of an effort of just keeping up, you know, just, just, just reversing or, or slowing down this, the rate of uh, of decline in the relative wage of teachers in terms of what that might lead, might, might deliver in terms of uh, student performance and market out, labor market output for the students. So I'll answer it from the U.S. in two ways. I mean, the, the U.S. has had exactly the picture you suggested that Steve suggests that, um, you know, 30 years ago, uh, women could either be nurses or teachers, and now they can run Hewlett-Packard. Um, and so there's been this dramatic change in terms of sort of measured test scores in the U.S. over time of salaries. Um, the, problem, the problem that I have with that analysis, which I think is partly right, um, is that I think it's too incomplete in the following sense. Uh, teacher salaries on average have fallen, but they're also much more compressed in the salaries in teaching than they are in, in other industries. And so what you tend to attract is, is very risk-averse people in the teaching, a very specialized group of people in the teaching. Within that group, there are still some very good teachers. And I think it's, a, it's wrong to say that we aren't getting good teachers, even though we're now drawing from the bottom third of our distribution as opposed to Finland in the top third. The problem with salaries, in my mind, is one, the level is too low for the best teachers, but it's too high for the worst teachers. And that if you, in fact, talk about changing the salary schedule in averages, um, I think you run into problems because I, I, I have this basic economic theorem that I'm not sure if I got it at MIT or not, but it's that uh, bad teachers like more salaries as much as good teachers. And so if you increase salaries across the board, you tend to keep everybody in. You don't get bad teachers selecting out because their salaries have gone up. Uh, and it, it takes and it's a policy that doesn't work very well to just think of raising salaries without changing how they're paid. <coughs> Quickly add to that. I mean, it's. Um, I think the same impression is there all over Europe or the world, basically. Um, I actually looked at the teacher pay numbers at least over the past 20 years and compared them to graduates from other um, uh, other graduates in other occupations <coughs> in Germany. And it's actually they went in parallel. Um, it's interesting. So the unions there just made sure that it actually went up as well, which, which people don't think actually, but it's true. Um, uh, but we have the same feeling that actually the probably the, their credentials have gone down quite a bit. And I'm I, I'm more and more convinced that it has a lot to do with, in a sense, what what Rick is referring to. It's whether um, who who wants to go into teaching, and if if the whole message you get is that well, there everybody gets the same, and actually doesn't matter how you perform, you everybody gets the same. So the people who who really do want to perform in what they do are not the first ones to say this is the the job I want to do, and that actually relates to the fin Finnish experience. So if you look at the wage level of teachers in Finland, it's dismal. It's really bad. 
It's a, it's amazing, and they seem to be the one country that has kept up, like getting all the best kids, like all the best kids from from a cohort want to go into teaching apparently. And part of the answer must be, although I think we don't fully understand how they kept up that that drive there, but part of the answer must be they have a very strong entrance entrance exams into uh, teaching. So basically, into at the university level, if you want to enter teacher education, um, where they make sure that only the best get through. And so they're, they're the whole, like maybe the whole culture or the whole idea is that people who go into teaching, they made it. So they actually, they are the ones who want to achieve. And uh, I think that's something that's missing in basically all other countries to make sure that uh, you actually set the sign that somebody who goes into teaching really is, uh, like has to do something, has to be good. So, so in the longer term in, in the UK, the salaries are clearly falling relative to a typical graduate. And that's for two reasons. One, because the salaries have not gone up that much, and two, because the relative wages of the graduates, of, the other graduates have gone up a lot, driven by trend, general trends in the labour market, tend to change, globalisation, uh, whatnot. Um, having said that, in the, in the last few years, there has been some improvements in, in, in teaching. I mean, some head teachers, especially in London, have paid quite a lot uh, now. I mean, there's definitely six-figure salaries on, on offer for head teachers jobs in, 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 in schools in London um, right now and basic teacher salaries have gone up as well over the last few years so we might s see what, whether that does anything about the flow of graduates coming in whether there's any difference. I do think this reprofessionalization thing is really important, it's not just all about salaries. And plenty of people enter the teaching uh, profession in the past because they're committed to improving things for children and they feel they're doing a good thing in society and so on. I think we've kind of lost some of that. Um, amongst uh, recent graduates, possibly because the outside opportunities from a different graduate job are even better now than they used to be. So it may still be about salaries because that may be what's, may be what's driving it. Uh, the first point, I think the distribution of values thing is really, really quite interesting uh, because if you, if you kind of think about, think about you know, the people who are obsessed <coughs> with education now, the middle class who are completely obsessed with education now, you know, a big topic of conversation around the dinner table is, you know, what's the best performing school to send your kid to. Uh, and whoever, whoever shouts loudest sometimes gets that through, and it may not be a performing school, I think, but, but there, is, um, there is that kind of stuff going on. It's also true that the old working class ethic was education was the way out in, in some ways, and I don't know whether we've lost some of that again because people have got dissatisfied or disheartened with the amount of people getting into, getting into universities. I mean, I had some slight backup slides that I could have shown about, about falls in social mobility and the increased inequality of access to higher education by family background. So if you look at the... Um, if you look at the top 20% of the children from the top 20% of uh, family incomes, in their, their rate of participation in higher education has gone up massively. If you look at the bottom 20%, it's stayed really flat and very, very low. With about 6 or 7, 8% of children going to university, when 50% are going from the top 20%. And that's really widened out over time. So I think this issue about value is, is, very, is potentially very important. But of course, what it does mean that school, is that schools become even more important. If, if parents really don't care, about children, um, about whether children do well in school or even have any chance of going to university subsequently, uh, particularly the highly able ones, uh, then presumably you know, it rests on something being done outside the household and the school is the natural mechanism for that to occur. And, you know, and if you can get engaged by some teacher who really, you know, as, as, as we said, the ones remember who are the real ones, then of course that could be some scope to to do something in the future. So I do think that I do think values point is, is, is actually quite interesting and important. Tim, you want to like, uh, Yeah, if we take the conversation in a slightly different direction, I think Richard's likely to want to come on this. And that's one, one 
thing we've heard quite a bit about is business school engagement. And you didn't really mention the role, you know, the schools are very much viewed as a sort of separate territory. We, we regulate them and we view them as entirely independent of our business strategy. But is the scope, are the things that you've seen, international experience, where bringing business and schools together to try and improve the skills base has worked? Or is it something about which you're skeptical as a kind of strategic growth strategy with, with improving schools? Now, if Richard wants to refine the question for because I know in your previous job in particular, you probably thought quite a lot about this. Yeah, well, no, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. I, 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 the only additional bit I would add to it is whether you think the way the UK labour market works uh, uh, discourages, in a sense, um, improvements in basic and intermediate level skills. The, the, emphasis, the heavy emphasis in the United Kingdom on a sort of flexible labour market, which says you can anchor, have people in and out and without great long-term commitments, whether that misagains against um, improvements in these, in these um, basic and intermediate levels. Uh, in in my view, yeah. uh, particularly in some relatively low wage sectors where turnover is in, you know, in and out of minimum wage jobs, and unemployment back in and out, uh, and there is very little commitment to uh, to perhaps uh, training people up on in, in, on the job to improve to improve their skills. I mean, something else that's actually true, and this is true across lots of countries. But if you look at adult training in the workplace. The people who get more adult training are people who've already got higher education levels, yeah. uh, and so the guys with low education levels are much less likely to receive training in the workplace. And that's a very important observation. I didn't talk about adult education, uh, although that is something that, that's true. So that's completely in line with that observation. On, on Tim's more kind of direct thing about business school you know, engagement between business and schools, um, I mean we've only had limited experience of that so far in this country. Although the academies, of course, and the city tech technology colleges have preceded them. Uh, where a, a, a local sponsor would come in uh, and, and be on the Board of Governors and have, have issues to define what the curriculum would be and indeed the specialisation of the school is, is one of the areas where we've had, if you like, private sector involvement uh, in, in schools. And I guess it's a little bit early to, you know, this is many things as a copper, it's a little bit early to really say whether that, 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 that's important or not. I think the early converters amongst the academies do seem to have done something. Although, of course, they're going from a very low base to start with. And it's also taken a while. Um, like, while like the charter schools in the US, you know, the, the charter schools didn't deliver anything immediately. It has to take a while. So, you know, in a year, a year or two after they open, you see nothing in terms of performance. Which is perhaps seeing, uh, in, in the academy's case, they're perhaps seeing the children who were in the predecessor school flowing through, and then you have to see the flow of the new, new, new students coming through. Um, but I think it's, it's, kind of mi it's kind of mixed so far. But there are some promising aspects that have come out of the academies on that so far. Could I respond in a couple of ways? One, one is the, the general statement about business school interaction it goes into the things Ludger talked about, about uh, vocational versus general education. And it fits in the dovetails with what Steve said, is that one of the aspects of vocational education in Germany is that the employers seem to uh, provide much more continuing education to people with general education than vocational education, which leads to similar problems. The other part that uh, you suggest in your um, statement is whether business can provide better leadership to schools, basically, to do a good job. In the U.S., I have been stunned by the um, lack of leadership of the business community. The business community 
the general statement is they moan about the fact that they don't get as good of employees as they want and they would like the schools to do better. And then whenever they turn to interacting with the schools, they basically go mushy and, and, and go along. If the schools say do this, they're happy with that in ways that they would never run their own businesses without paying attention to the data and, and the incentives and the management and so forth. But they um, are happy to just be very passive supporters of what's going on in the school, saying we want more. So I uh, have turned uh, a bit skeptical about whether this, the business community is an answer to improving the quality of our schools. Can I, can I follow on this? Because I mean, um, pushing it to this kind of post-school issue and the vocational training issue. So in, in, in the UK, um, as, as Steve showed in his presentation, there's been this ongoing concern about the transition from school to work, especially for the you know, group of kids who are not going to go, are very unlikely to go to college, um, who are not typically going to be the high academic achievers. A lot of, you know, if you look at the unemployment rates or the need rate of that group, they've gone up a lot of time. And the, both this government and the previous government, the focus has been very much on, well, apprenticeships are the way forward on this. And, you know, despite that view, I mean, maybe they haven't pushed it you know, enough, um, it still seems to be the case that the UK doesn't seem to be very successful at getting a you know, good apprenticeship system off the ground. Now, your view seems to be, you know, that maybe that might not be the right thing to do anyway. We should focus on general skills, particularly you know, the evidence at the end of the life cycle. Um, but do you have any views, or maybe you, Richard, again, this former has some view on this? Now, what, what is the problem? What is the fundamental problem here? Do we think? You know, is it lack of employer interest? <coughs> is it just a different set of institutions? Or well, I think part of the problem in the UK is that. Uh, the idea of an apprenticeship is nothing like it is in Germany. So I think I'm right in saying that the biggest employers of apprentices are supermarket groups who are doing uh, kind of 12-week programs for people who are over the age of 25 on average. This I don't think would count as anything <laughs> serious. I mean, this is really the Train to Gain program with a new badge on it. I think it's, it's, you know, it's politically exciting to say we're going to have a million apprenticeships more than we've got now, but it's not, I don't think moving the needle on the dial at all. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that will be very different. And I think, I mean, yeah, if you really want to go there and what the German-speaking countries, basically, they have these huge apprenticeship systems, Germany, Austria, and, and Switzerland, and they are basically in all these countries, about half of any cohort goes through these systems. Uh, but these are all programs that are usually three years long, sometimes uh, reduced to two years. And uh, a whole set of schools just like with that actually the state is, is organizing um, where the, the students or the, like the apprentices go either once a week or on, on block every whatever fifth week or so um, which of course has a huge institutional component with that you cannot build within a year or two I mean, which is also like the whole yeah there's something about traditions of, of firms and, and uh, the whole culture goes in as well which uh, so I, I think, truly, these vocational systems have a lot of positive aspects to them. And I, I mean, I so giving our research, I don't tell the, the German apprenticeship people that they should stop doing apprenticeship. <laughs> it's rather that you 
got to think about first, like, uh, that you get more general skill content into into these apprentices as well, into apprenticeships. Also, that you keep on retraining or make sure that you get general skills throughout. And I think the final and the bottom line of these things is which people you get. I mean, if the alternative for a person who doesn't get an apprentice is uh, apprenticeship is not general education as in our analysis, basically, but actually getting no education at all, then, I mean, that's true is, is a difference. But there, actually, we've got to be aware, for example, in Germany, that I think about 18% of any cohort actually never gets that. Actually, the very bottom one is not reached anymore by the apprenticeship system, which um, uh, tells you as well that it's not a solution for everything, uh, particularly at the bottom. Yeah, I think you have to be careful about translating over some of these institutions that operate in different places to the, to the, to the UK system, uh, especially since the labour market's evolved in rather a different way. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, remember people tracked onto vocational and academic routes at a much earlier age in, in Germany, and it, practically all the apprentices come from a vocational track. And I'm not sure we want to be doing anything about tracking people at early ages in secondary school. That would seem to me to be not a very sensible thing to do at all, especially when there's not much more way transitions across those tracks for people who might be able to switch. Um, I think it's also true that the nature of what an apprenticeship here is has very much evolved. And so the big expansion recently, it's right, is people who are over 25, uh, often in, in, in retail um, as well. The other big group, of course, is hairdressers, which is the other non and the other service, service sector apprenticeship, which is um, which has been quite big, which is younger people um, doing that. I mean, I think the big concern here is that the vocational qualifications base that people end up with is so mixed that many employers don't really know what. What they're getting from the qualifications that people get. I know a number of vocational qualifications has been slimmed down because it used to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different vocational qualifications that people get. And end up with, you know, and if somebody gets an MVQ2 in something, employers have no idea what, what it means and whether it's of any relevance to them whatsoever. And then the people investing in getting those MVQ2 qualifications uh, don't get a wage payoff because the employers don't know what they are. And it's a very disheartening process for well, everybody involved, I think. And so it's not obvious that. One thing you might naturally jump to to say that we're not doing very well on delivering uh, intermediate skills or, or, or even basic lower skills would be that they have to be vocational. That doesn't follow naturally at all, I don't think. Uh, and it seems to me that if the jobs that people are doing require a graduate education these days, which the fact that the wage differentials are not falling, despite the fact that the supply has gone up a lot, seems to be what's going on, it does mean, seem to me that we need to still be equipping people with general academic skills to give them a, ch a fair chance of getting into university, whether they do whether they do or not. Of course, the balance between academic and vocational has to be always, always maintained, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, I don't think. And the chance of getting to university is really, I mean, I remember reading, if, you've got, if you're a kid with two A-levels, you've got a nine in 10 chance of going to university, whatever your socioeconomic background. So really the issue is right, much as we were saying, it's much earlier in the education. Oh yeah, clearly, clearly things get set in place earlier and people get knocked off route much earlier, much, much earlier on. And the fact that the, the main aim should be to keep them on, certainly the more able kids, keep them on route, so at least they stand a chance to compete for them. I'd like to open things up a bit for the uh, audience to be very patient since uh, haven't had a chance to ask any questions. So uh, is, there, is there a, do you want to uh, announce yourself? And, uh, oh, my name's Vernon Bolton, I'm, I'm political scientist and perhaps for that reason slightly exasperated with some of the discussion which seems to me far too concentrated on economic matters and not enough on cultural. I mean the comment was made about um, uh, education being a way out for 
members of the working class, but that's true for a part of the working class, but there's always been a very strong anti-educational attitude in parts of the uh, English working class, perhaps, and perhaps that mattered less 50 years ago when there were more jobs for unskilled people, but it matters a great deal now. I think one of the things one might do is to do an uh, ethnic analysis of this. I suspect these attitudes are stronger amongst the white English working class than amongst the Asian English working class, but that would be worth investigating. But this tale we're talking about seems to be ignored in, in um, approaches of government, and policies for the tale fall between the schools ministry and the BIS. They tend to be ignored. Uh, our targets for schools have been five GCS, GCSEs, but many of the people we're talking about are unlikely to be able to secure the, that level of attainment, and so they tend to be ignored by the teachers. They're not part of the target emphasis, and the, the raising of the school leaving age, in a sense, would be damaging to this group because they don't need a watered-down academic education in a sixth form. And uh, Perhaps part of our problem is that um, we, we use uh, discussions of intent and so on, and perhaps more coercive policies are needed for this sort of group that when they've required, acquired basic literacy and numeracy, let them leave school even if early and take these sorts of qualifications people can talk about in hairdressing or car maintenance or whatever we're talking about. But it, it seems to me for the, and th th these problems we're talking about, the very deep-seated problems, they okay. were I think first okay. raised by... Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, maybe I was a bit general on the education as the way out. I mean, I meant for some selected groups of people within within the working class, and there clearly is a concentration of attitudes against against that as well, which is Francesco's point about values. And you're right, the ethnic the ethnicity thing is very interesting in in, in terms of change, changes over time, and I, I suspect your uh, your presumption that it's it's the white working class where things and and, and the black working class. Actually. Where, where, where the things are concentrated is actually is actually is actually true. It was, it, it, you know, there was big educational aspirations amongst uh, Asians and Chinese uh, families. So you you kind of you kind of right on that. Um, I, I mean, I'm not so I'm not so convinced that uh, that uh, about the not increasing relief, relieving age because I, I I still tend to think that there may be some productivity improvements from what people do get from being made to stay in the classroom. That's clearly been true in the past when it went up from 14 to, when the school leaving age went up from 14 to 15 and 15 to 16. But it does seem to appear that people people who were affected by that did earn more in the labour market, they got higher wages, which implies higher productivity. Now, of course, what you're talking about now, raising the leaving age uh, rather than the school leaving age is actually a different kettle of fish uh, because some people will be doing, uh, will, be, will be working basically uh, uh, and, and attend, attending uh, FE college probably part-time while, while, while they're doing that. So it's a different kettle of fish. I'm not sure how much we would want to translate over from 14 to 15, 15 to 16. In 16 okay, a couple of other questions. Go ahead. Uh, Ray Barrell. Uh, <coughs> I, I am an economist. A question about optimal class size. I, I fully take your point about if you remove the bottom 10% of teachers, the average quality of teaching goes up. That's all we do. We also increase the average class size. Now, the evidence, as far as I'm aware, is that class size has some effect on learning outcomes, but not a huge one. So, as an economist, I see an optimization problem there. And that optimization problem has to be set against the British obsession with small classes. So, I would suspect one could do some calculations about 
how much damage that obsession has done to the quality of our education. So I wondered if you had any comment on I spent a lot of time looking at class size and fighting some of these battles, and the answer is yes um, <laughs> to your question. I mean, it's uh, the evidence on class size is very weak and limited, and it perhaps has some impact on the various lowest grades, but not after that. And all of the um, evidence is that you should have let class size go up a little bit, pay more to your good teachers, and, uh, uh, and in fact, assign the good teachers big classes, and the small teacher, and the bad teachers small classes, because they do less harm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're in our last kind of final, so I think we're going to collect a variety of questions, and just give all the panelists a chance to just, just make any, any final points. So, lady at the front, you're doing great patience. Amanda Steelman, I'm Research and Policy Director of an academy chain, Arc Schools, and I'm also Chair of the Exam and Qualification Regulator, Ofqual. Um, but a question for Stephen. I spent some time yesterday looking at the, the PISA analysis of within school and between school variation, and I was rather surprised um, to see that, contrary to what I'd always understood to be the case, between, um, between school variation in the school um, was actually not that high relative to international comparators. Yes, there's a sort of teeny golden group of countries where there's almost none, but the UK isn't high either. So, so perhaps parents aren't get, getting what they're paying for, and we should be concentrating more on so what happens in schools than on school structures. Uh, David Sweeney, Higher Education Funding Council. I was just interested in your throwaway comment at the end that uh, government investment in skills is a waste of time. And I just wondered if you were going to could tease that out. <laughs> a waste of money. Um, I'm quite less fascinated with Germany than everybody seems to be in the room. And I'm wondering, given the structure of the economy there, does it work very well for manufacturing? But it might not work that well for all those other occupations that we also have been talking about, teachers, childcare workers, and, uh, and similar. So I'm wondering if we should be looking at other countries that did a better job in training those occupations, even also that they are the ones that are increasing the most in terms of uh, numbers, and MBQs in childcare don't do a great job in this country. Uh, I'm Tom Wilson, I run the um, Education Skills Department at the TUC. Uh, I wouldn't say much about the comments on teacher unions, other than to say that actually there are plenty of examples of teacher unions around the world who are perfectly happy about negotiating fair and sensible ways of assessing performance and so on. Um, my comment really was more about the adult skills point, uh, picking up David's, David Sweeney's point there. Just, uh, could you say a bit more about um, to what extent it's possible really to uh, run sensible and effective programs at lifelong learning level for people aged 25 and above, which, which overcome the family effect? I, t I take Richard Lampard's point, I think it's very, very strong in the UK obviously, but our experience in the, in the TUC where we run a big learning program for, for workers uh, last year, for example, we had about a quarter of a million learners that we took through some sort of learning program. Uh, our experience is that it's, it's a very powerful way of overcoming that kind of family disadvantage for certain groups of workers. Okay, so one minute each for all panellists to sum up and make some final points. Uh, who wants to go first? Uh, so, so the question about within and between, I think, is, is an interesting one. Uh, although the, the, the numbers, I think, that you're talking about on PISA, I'll actually just cross-circular at that point in time. So mm -hmm. what you really like to do is change it over time and see if the 
in any improvements are within and within and between. But I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not so surprising that a lot of the action is within schools because that's where a lot of the potential improvements could take place. So things about you know curriculum change and, and perhaps class size and things like that could be policies within schools that people might be interested in. But, and indeed, you know, the I mean, particularly curriculum change actually. Uh, the, I'll, I'll tell you everyone about lifelong learning as well, and, and kind of say what I said before, because it's uh, the problem. It's, it's not so much that there is successful examples of lifelong learning. The, the, the problem is, is who gets it, and, <coughs> and it's the fact that it's the already the more educated people. It, it was a very, very big inequality in this. I mean, I, I could have put, I couldn't probably should, should have put up a chart from some OECD numbers showing this. That the people with the low levels of education, part, in part because they're probably cycling in and out of in and out of jobs, and so perhaps they're not long enough in there long enough to receive any substantial training is, is the problem. I mean, I mean, the very fact that, that there are successful examples, principally amongst the more educated, ought to be translated over to those guys as well, and that is actually something that could be used to offset um, aspects of disadvantage from from, from, from early on. Um, <coughs> maybe I should just extend on uh, on this and this uh, too short comment. So there's, I mean, the point is that. It, all the evidence shows that it's extremely hard for the government to uh, like encourage an effective adult education and, and further training. And uh, I, I totally agree with, with what Steve said, that what we see everywhere is that the high educated people get additional training uh, and the low educated don't. Um, there's a lot of analysis of um, active labor market programs where people who have gotten unemployed then get uh, retraining. And these often are extremely ineffective. I mean, we've a lot of examples from Germany where actually the, the results <coughs> of that might actually be negative. So people who didn't have to go to this program were faster to get back into the labor market. So it's, it's hard to do. Um, now we, uh, I was involved in, in a huge field experiment study in Switzerland where the idea was um, okay, that, that, let's not just focus on the, those people who have already gotten unemployed, but they, before they get unemployed, we hand out vouchers, actually pretty high-paying vouchers for people, and they can use it for anything, any adult education they want, basically, and most would use it for language courses or computer courses and or other work-related courses. And um, again, what you see is that um, the take-up is much, much higher among the high-educated than the lower-educated. So just by handing out the vouchers, it doesn't help. The people don't use it. There is a slight indication, though, which is, I mean, the, the statistic of power there is not very big, that it's actually the low educated, or interestingly, not the very low educated, but the, those with vocational training, uh, with, with apprenticeship uh, education as their highest uh, degree, that they are probably the ones who would benefit the most from it. But they're actually the ones who are the least likely to use these vouchers. So it's, it's the, the point is it's very hard to get at those. And so any a generalized uh, intervention that's not targeted at these will actually, I mean, we don't find any effect on employment, on, on uh, earnings, or on uh, further training later on due to that. But we, what we do see actually is a, quite a crowd out effect on, from firm finance training. So all these things add up to a point where actually the, the effect of this program was probably, I mean, it's very discouraging, but it's probably close to zero. I mean, I would have hoped otherwise. Um, let me, there were two more things. I mean, like, I, I hope you didn't get me wrong in the sense that I'm very, like, a high, big fan of the German apprenticeship system. I mean, I was the one who basically put out the point that actually there's something uh, dangerous about that uh, in the longer run picture. Uh, although it also has positive effects. I mean, 
but uh, as a matter of fact, actually, we do have lots of apprenticeships outside of manufacturing. That's that's not the main cause. It's, and there are some service sectors where it's not as common, but actually most it is. I mean, I think that the strongest parts are like accountants and all these things that are actually that, that are huge apprenticeship system. But also, I mean, childcare people do have these. The question is whether that's great, and I mean, I was uh, just on a panel to suggest that we should have more professionalization there as well. So it's a, um, uh, it's, it's a real question of whether that's the, the, the best way to go. Um, the final point on this, I mean, I found the, the point interesting that actually it's more the between school variation than, uh, sorry, there's not that much of a between school variation in big time com uh, compared to other countries. If that's the case, and I was really wondering about this polarization and the question about values that actually there's a large group of people who, where the parents just don't care. You know what, I think if, if, and I was a bit scared about the fact that actually you get by, by living in certain areas, you are most likely to get into schools and so you get actually choice by based of the money of the parents or how much they care to move there. But if, if actually there is enough overlap between interested and non-interested people, basically. And I, I think, I mean, one important thing there is to get away from making totally sure that just you've got to move there uh, uh, and then you get in. And so you should basically, I think if you want to have more choice, you should really have a lottery for people to come in, basically, in the school. That would be the fair thing. But if that's uh, the case, well, then... Cut you off, but <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the, the final point, let me just make the final point, is that um, just as with any supermarket or so, Everybody, if there's choice in the system, all, also the people who don't exert choice profit from it because it raises everything. So I'm not running around to every supermarket and see what the milk is cost, cost there, but because there's choice and people do look at the different things, I profit from that and I don't have to exert the choice to profit. So I'll, I'll be 20 seconds. So one fact that I, from the US at least, that I think is relevant for much of this discussion is that while there's been an increasing difference in the wage rates of higher educated versus low educated, so that the college premium in the U.S. is 1.8 compared to a high school graduate <coughs> now, at the same time, within education groups, the income distribution has been spreading out, which I take it as more reinforcement of this idea that having high levels of basic skills pays off in that you see people who get into higher education with lower skills, in fact, don't do as well as others uh, at the other end. And that sort of falls through a number of these discussions that, you, that it's more basic than just looking at these levels of completion and who's there. Thanks very much. Well, um one thing I should say is that for people, this has been a really great session, and if you have any other comments, people in the audience, you want to feed into the Growth Commission, please email them in. The, if you go to the, uh, the website, there's, a, there's an email there that you can put your comments in, and if you have further questions, do that, or email to me instead. So just, says, just has to say thanks once again to our three excellent panelists. It's a really great discussion, and the audience as well. Thank you very much.